It's just a beautiful notion that we could provide therapeutic rituals for people again within the healthcare system that help them deal with root causes of their suffering. Hi there. This is Michael C. Patterson, CEO of MindRamp Coaching and Consulting. At MindRamp, we're passionate about redefining human longevity. In this, my third podcast with Daniel R. George, we dive into the fascinating topic of psychedelics and their therapeutic benefits. Psychedelics are a specific class of non-addictive drugs that seem to have the power to rewire our brains and move us into states of consciousness that help us feel less isolated from one another and more connected to and part of the natural world. Danny George is an Associate Professor of Humanities and Public Health Sciences at Penn State College of Medicine. He earned his Ph.D. and his Master's of Science in Medical Anthropology from Oxford University in 2010. He has over 130 professional peer-reviewed publications, and his research on intergenerational issues in dementia care has been recognized by the global advocacy group Alzheimer's Disease International. Just before I called you, I was scanning through some of your articles and I came on one about psilocybin. I was particularly interested in the idea that uh, people who have a good psilocybin trip towards the end of their life are less fearful about dying. Your article was fascinating and you, you raised a whole bunch of different issues. One of the words that struck me was shamanism, and you're sort of promoting a reemergence, maybe, of, of shamanism as, a, as an important force. Can you explain what that means to people? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that to the, to the fore here. I guess this is a part of the conversation where we both get in trouble for talking about psychedelics. <laughs> well, you know. No, it's, it's, it's a fascinating area, and um, you know, it's really reemerged in the last decade. Research on international psychedelics was banned basically since the seventies. Thanks, people Mr. Were starting, Leary. Yeah, thanks, Mr. Leary. Indeed, you know, and people <laughs> were starting to ask questions about the structure of society and what what is owed to people and our connection to one another. But it, it has reemerged, ironically, in clinical settings now. And so, things like psilocybin, which is the compound from you know magic mushrooms, um, LSD, ketamine, other, other classic psychedelics are being used in therapeutic settings, but with the, the structured guidance of a, of, of a therapist who is in the role of a shaman. You know, they're helping people interpret the symbols, the feelings that are surfaced during these experiences and interpret them hopefully in healthier ways. And there's been some really profound preliminary data, again, preliminary on things like death related anxiety for people with terminal cancer. Uh, 80% of the participants had lower anxiety after their psilocybin trips. Things like eating disorders or depression, anxiety, uh, PTSD, MDMA has been used for, for uh, soldiers coming back from war zones. Anything where the ego is sort of implicated in um, the pathology of an illness uh, with sort of habitual thought patterns um, or you know negative ideations. The benefit of psychedelic is that it sort of disrupts what we call the default mode network, which is the series of structures that essentially creates the self, a sense of a coherent self, the ego. It allows people to access tra traumatic memories, traumas from their past, and um, deal with them face on with the help of a shamanic therapeutic guide. 
Uh, it's a really powerful model. I'm not sure it can scale, you know, it need to be one of those things that we invest in, but it's in a culture that's so, sort of like painfully devoid of ritual and deracinated in so many ways as atomized individuals. It's just a beautiful notion that we could provide therapeutic rituals for people again within the healthcare system that help them deal with root causes of their suffering. Right. And um, in more recent years, there's been a sort of focus on whether we might be able to use these class of drugs for people with mild cognitive impairment or even dementia. And I'm working with folks at Johns Hopkins who are now doing a pilot study on MCI and, and caregivers of people living with mild cognitive impairment. What would be the mechanism for the, the intervention? Because the way I think about psilocybin and psychedelics is what you were describing, that there's kind of a dissolution of the ego, a letting go of the tight, mm -hmm. the, the urge to pull everything together and control everything. It kind of loosens it all up mm -hmm. and then has a more sort of fertile ground for being able to reorganize your thinking somewhat. Mm -hmm. But if MCI or mild cognitive impairment or the beginnings of dementia is actually the beginnings of degradation of neuronal function, how would psychedelics help that? Yeah, it's a great question. So in terms of the mechanism, when people talk about the neurobiology of psychedelics, they focus on mm -hmm. things like neuroplasticity. So psilocybin, for instance, appears to increase uh, the density of dendritic structures throughout the brain. Psilocybin also may have anti-inflammatory properties. So it may inhibit cytokines, for instance. These things are being studied right now. So but, just to put just to put a marker on that, yeah. If uh, what what somebody is suffering from is uh, chronic inflammation, which is damaging the brain, and psilocybin shuts that down to a certain extent, then it would slow the progress simply by reducing the uh, chronic inflammation. Is that what That's you're right. saying? That it could be it could be one mechanism to help with age-related cognitive changes and mitigating those changes. Yeah. And, and the other thing I thought I heard, when I just wanted to check that I had it right, is that um because it uh, psilocybin promotes plasticity, it could allow a damaged brain to compensate to find better ways to sort of work around the damage and use parts of the brain that are not damaged. Did I hear that correctly? I think that is a fair hypothesis that they're going to be testing. This is where my thinking on this has gone, which is, you know, if, if there are these neurobiological benefits to psilocybin and other psychedelics, great. But if not, I still think there could be a role for them um, in terms of behavioral care for people. So you think about assisted living homes and what you were talking about earlier about um, the ego being very tight for people who have mm -hmm. dementia and you can get those re repetitive patterns of behavior sometimes. So could something like microdosing psychedelics help to alleviate some of that tightness, that mm. the default mode network, which, you know, multiplies depression and anxiety and distress and repetitive behaviors for people? Could it replace antipsychotics, uh, which we know are very dangerous in, in those settings because psychedelics are quite tolerated and non-toxic, um, especially at low doses. But even beyond that, could you imagine, um, as we're talking about dementia-friendly communities and quality of life for people with dementia, could psychedelics help enhance arts-based approaches to care? Experiences with music, with exposure to green spaces and gardens, with experiences with artwork, expressive artwork. Because what psychedelics do is create a sense of the numinous or the sacred for people at times. Mm -hmm. uh, they can deepen people's ability to see and feel music and uh, the synesthetic 
elements that sometimes happen when people are on psychedelics. So you could imagine it being a very, you know, at low doses, again, um, a, a very uh, a way of enhancing the sensorial pleasure of, of arts, arts-based experiences. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I made that association between the psychedelics and art therapy and art-based uh, interventions. I hadn't thought so much about the psychedelics amplifying the mm-hmm. art-based, but I was thinking, oh, maybe that's Maybe it's actually is the same kind of thing, because when you're listening to music, you're in your body and it's just happening. It's, it's kind of this loose, almost psychedelic experience. I was just talking with a woman named Judy Rubin, who is a, um, one of the pioneers in art therapy. And we we're talking about what is the power of art in a therapeutic situation. And it was occurring to me that maybe it's this loosening of the bonds and getting you into a position where you, um, you can be more receptive to therapy. You are listening to a MindRamp podcast. I'm your host, Michael C. Patterson, and I'm talking with Daniel R. George, co-author of American Dementia, Brain Health in an Unhealthy Society, and we're exploring the therapeutic benefits of psychedelics. I want to circle back to the uh, to the shamanism idea a little bit, because things that you were talking about, which I think, you know, again, for our listeners, want to mark... They talk about, is it set and setting is, yeah. is important? Yep. And one of the things in your article that I found really interesting that I didn't know about is the shaman will give somebody a psychedelic, but you made very clear it's not just giving the psychedelic and your job is done. It was like a four-week preparatory period where they not only were they preparing the person to have the right attitude once they had the, the psychedelic, but the shaman himself or herself was learning about the person and figuring out what kind of intervention am I going to make? Can you say more about that? What what goes into the uh, the shaman's preparation, and then what does the shaman do? Yeah, no, that's a great insight. And these are not recreational drugs, is the, right. the bottom line. Um, and the way that they're used in indigenous cultures is um, to create a therapeutic window for people and to open people up to different rituals, which can help them confront you know, aspects of their, their, their past or things that are bothering them in the moment. And yes, the, in order to do that, the shaman has to spend a significant amount of time getting to know the person uh, so that he can help move them along in, in ways that they're amenable to. And they, this is done through ancient rituals too, like um, the peyote ceremonies in the Southwest. Mm-hmm. There's a particular way people move inside the sweat lodge, inside the tents, there are feathers that are handed around and rituals that coincide with who has the feather. And so it's both idiosyncratic and matched to the person's needs, but also communal. And you're not just going through it alone as an atomized individual in a market, right, for instance, but you're you're suffering the dislocation and relocation with other people who are also suffering. There's something very powerful about that. And the shaman's job is to, to move people through the, the rituals and then help them reintegrate in a healthier way. And that would be what the today's shamans, today's spiritual guides at places like Johns Hopkins, you know, Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research are doing is trying to help people integrate in a more healthy way and reconcile some of the traumas and, you know, ideations from their past. And it seems like part of the movement towards health is away from the individual, the rugged individual, and more to this sense of, I am part of a much greater whole, that 
my skin is a little bit of an artificial boundary. I am the ecosystem as much as I am the individual. Yeah. I'm going to read a quote from the article, which I thought was provocative. Um, He said, it is plausible that therapeutically guiding contemporary humans through psychedelic experiences could potentially serve as a means of provoking new ideas, innovations to push through areas of cultural stagnation, fragmentation, and longstanding geopolitical conflicts. It seems like what you're saying is psychedelics could conceivably help us break through neoliberalism and hypercapitalism. And was that what you were implying there? Yeah. And I, I'm glad I chose my words carefully there. I said could. Uh, and, and <laughs> right. There obviously needs to be a lot of research. I don't want to repeat the sins of Timothy Leary here. Mm-hmm. Too much of a prophet about this stuff. But yeah, I mean, the benefit of them is to disrupt these habitual patterns, which ca- cause personal and cultural stagnation. Really also, as you're alluding to, give people a sense of unity, unification with something beyond themselves, whether that's the sacred in a spiritual sense or a connection to other human beings or to nature mm-hmm. or to the ecosystem that we're a part of or the universe itself. It gives people a chance to think outside of this very individualistic, reductive Western notion, egoic notion of the self. And that is the great promise of psychedelics. We, we, mm. They're not a panacea. And we have to be very careful and honor the way that they've been used for thousands of years by indigenous cultures. But I think we find ourselves at a very troubling time right now. People on the left and right have have pointed out uh, the stagnation that we're we have as a culture, and uh, it, it feels under neoliberalism like uh, things don't get any better; they just sort of get incrementally worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think a lot of people have had that sense, and it doesn't really matter what political regime is in place or what party wins elections; we're just trapped in this loop right now. And you know, to credit the boomers, I think the the '60s unleashed something archetypally, culturally in the zeitgeist. And I'm a big Beatles fan; I'm playing a Beatles cover band and you can hear you can hear the psychedelic uh, influence on the music of that era and the energy and the the vision people had of of a different world and the values that might inform a healthier society and so again I don't want to be too prophetic about these things or too mystical but um I just feel like in this particular moment we're in it, it could be a potential tool to help us Interestingly enough, I, I've started uh, listening to recordings of Alan Watts, who was a big mm. 60s icon. And one of the things that he was talking about was the mindset that we have in the West that we were made by nature. It's like we were constructed. We are a thing that comes out of nature and that therefore that construct of mind makes us separate from nature. And we don't trust nature, therefore, so we try to control it. You're saying more so in the East, they say we came out of nature. We are a part of nature and we're more like a blossoming of a, of a plant. And that has a very different mindset about how you relate to nature because there's nothing wrong with it. It is. It is the manifestation of what we are and we are it. So at least the way he was framing it, that, that promotes much more respect for nature much more of a concern that we're not trying to fix nature by, you know, all this construction that is actually ending up destroying nature. Mm -hmm. I also want to read a second quote because it was related to that idea that psychedelics can fix everything. It says, importantly, increasing focus on psychedelics must not 
depoliticize larger political economic structures that are perpetuating the material conditions, actively degrading the physical and mental well-being of millions. Um, we can't forget these political and economic systems that are in place are doing us harm. So we can't be become apolitical just because we're feeling high and not high. I shouldn't even say that. So good framework. We we should take it for what it's worth, but be careful and still be as activist as we can in, in fixing the, the political and economic systems that are not serving us well. That's well put. And I think what, we, what what I want to avoid and what you can hear coming out in that passage is not wanting to responsibilize the individual, right? right. To seek out psychedelic treatment. And that's the panacea for individuals that, that will not affect the material conditions that are making people feel alienated and despairing and atomized. Those things we need to in, invest in as a people and have a new social contract that gets us back to feeling more collective sense of uh, destiny together and unity. And we're, we're in such a fragmented uh, moment right now. It's it, and it's not just the neoliberalism. It's also like culture war. Think of all of the money that goes into fueling culture war and creating the sense that you know, Trump voters are different than metropolitan educated people. And, you know, there's just so much discourse right now that fractures us and fragments us. And it's it's uh, exhausting and at odds with what you're describing and what Alan Watts is describing, which is this beautiful, sacred unity that we are capable of feeling as human beings with one another. If you have not already done so, I encourage you to listen to all three of my recent podcasts with Danny George, as well as the two podcasts with Peter Whitehouse. Danny and Peter co-authored two essential books for anyone interested in getting a fully rounded perspective on dementia. They are The Myth of Alzheimer's, What You Aren't Being Told About Today's Most Dreaded Disease, which was published in 2008, and American Dementia. Brain Health in an Unhealthy Society, published in 2021. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks for caring about healthy brains and clear-thinking minds. Learn more about our work and research at www.mindramp.org. Okay, until next time, take care of yourself, take care of your family and your community, and take care of the planet that sustains us all. <laughs>